0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our new Friday series, Walking Through the Book of Jonah with James Jordan. Do take a look at those links down there in the show notes. Right now, we are in the midst of an ongoing Theopolis conversation over on the website. That conversation was begun by Dr. James Rogers, a member of our Civitas group, and several other scholars have already responded. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing the book of Jonah.
1: You know, I just couldn't help but notice, and I'm sure some of you did, that we were in Joppa again this morning. So let's let's take a moment or two to think about Jonah And Peter, because Jonah, went to Joppa to escape from God. And all these events here in Acts chapter 9 and 10 happen in Joppa. And that's deliberate. And they all had to do with Gentiles and converting Gentiles. And it starts in Acts chapter 9, verse 36. Okay. In Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which translated is called Dorcas, which means gazelle. Okay. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity which she continually did, and it came about at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they cleansed her body, they laid it in an upper room. And since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him entreating him, "Don't delay to come to us." And Peter came and they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them out and knelt and prayed, returning to the body. He said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, calling the saints and widows. He presented her alive, and it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it came about that he stayed many days in Joppa with a certain tanner named Simon. Now, there's just a couple of things going on here. One is her name is Gazelle. A gazelle is a clean animal in the Old Testament. You can eat all the gazelle and deer you want. You may eat it, but it doesn't go on the altar. Okay? there's only five animals that you can sacrifice on the altar. And they are. Gold. Gold. Silver, no. All right. Five animals that can go on the altar: goat, (laughs) sheep, lamb, ewes, bulls, pigeons, and doves. Okay. You got it. You can eat those and you can sacrifice those. And They represent Israelites, okay? They're clean animals that are used in worship because Israel is related to the worship system. But clean animals that are not used in worship, such as deer and gazelle, represent converted Gentiles, okay? And so you've got, especially in in Deuteronomy, once we start moving into a more Gentile situation, coming into the land, we have a list of clean animals, that, like fish, that represent Gentiles or gazelles. So here this woman is and she's her name is associated with uh, with uh, Gentiles. Now, if you come into the same room with a corpse under the law, death spreads to you. The word unclean in the Bible means dead. Uncleanness is death, symbolic death, and you get it from dead things. All right. Anything that's Dead. Uh, once a month, a woman has death coming out of her body, so she's unclean. And anything she sits on is unclean. Under the law, no longer. Dead bodies, dead human bodies make you unclean. You can't go to the tabernacle. Now, that's all changed since the resurrection of Jesus. None of that death no longer has power over us. Now, life spreads. When a woman with an unclean issue touched Jesus' garment, life went out from him and cleansed her. That's the opposite of what would happen under the law. And the reason that worked is that Jesus, Jesus had no death nature. So he was not a magnet for uncleanness. Uncleanness didn't come to him. It just bounced off him. He was Teflon to it. And instead, life came out of him. Well, now we have the same thing. And this is all very written this way. Peter goes into the upper room. He's in this room. You remember when Jesus raised the little girl? He made the disciples stay outside while he went in. So they wouldn't become unclean. Now Peter goes in and he brings life. And this woman comes to life again. Great stuff. Right here in Joppa where, where Jonah had been. And then he stays with a tanner named Simon. Very unpleasant occupation. You know what is used to tan hides is urine. So tanneries always stink. Then we come to a complete change. There's a certain man at Caesarea. Caesar town, big, important imperial place. His name is Cornelius. He's a devout man, a God fearing Gentile. He gives alms to the Jewish people. And he sees in the vision, angel says, dispatch some men to Joppa, send for a man, Simon, who is called Peter. He's t- staying with another tanner, a tanner who's also named Simon, whose house is by the sea. I want to wash all that unclean stuff into the water. And so he goes and meanwhile, Peter has this vision on the housetop and he sees the sheet coming down from heaven with all the animals in the world in it. And he's told, her, rise and kill and eat. And he won't do so. And uh, God says, no, you need to do this. It happens three times. And the voice comes to him and says, well, God has cleansed. And Peter says, I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. That's not actually true. I've never eaten anything defiled or unclean. In other words, why am I doing I should be talking about Jonah, but this is so much fun. A dead body is unclean. All right. A dead animal carcass is unclean. If you didn't kill it with a knife, pour out the blood, it's just unclean. If it's a roadkill, it's unclean. If something touches it, it becomes defiled. Death spreads. Death spreads to all men under the law. In many ways, we inherit death, physical death, symbolic death spreads. So you have the source of uncleanness, which is something unclean, and then things that are defiled by it. Peter says, I've never eaten anything defiled or unclean. And God says, what God has cleansed, you shall not consider Unclean. That's not really what he says. He says, What God has cleansed, you shall not defile. In other words, Peter, you're like a corpse, and uncleanness spreads from you to these poor, innocent Gentiles. If you have this attitude, instead of spreading life and taking life and resurrection life where you go, you're taking death and spreading death where you go. That's what this actually says. He doesn't say, don't you regard him. He says, don't you defile him. So then this becomes an issue, you see. And there's all this nonsense here, you know. They complain because he went into the house of an uncircumcised person. Where is that in the law? God invites uncircumcised people over to his temple to worship in Numbers 15. Uh, There's nothing in the law. They complain, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Why not? That's what you should be doing. That's what Jonah was supposed to do, but he didn't want to do it. And they're complaining to Peter because he did it. When Peter says, you know, it's, it's not considered lawful for us to do this, he doesn't say that word for law that's used everywhere else in the New Testament. He says it's just not our custom. This, this is the oral law, the, the Jewish invented rules. So God is smacking all this down. So it's kind of interesting. All this stuff happens at Joppa. It's definitely linked up with Jonah, as we saw a couple of weeks ago when we zipped through Jonah in one lesson. Now we begin the 64-lesson course in Jonah. And we're going to begin that by putting Jonah in two contexts. One, the literary context in the book of the Twelve. And the other will be the historical context. And we'll start talking today about the minor prophets. Uh, we call them minor prophets. That's not what they're called in the Bible or in, uh, Jewish tradition. Let me show you Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 42. Stephen is speaking and he's bringing an indictment against uh, the Jews who are about to stone him to death. He says in verse 42, But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness. Was it, O house of Israel? Instead, you also took along the tabernacle of Molech and the star of the god Rompah, images you made to worship them. Now, that is a Quotation. Okay, from Amos, but he says it's from the Book of the Prophets. That is the title for what we call the minor prophets. The minor prophets is not regarded canonically and biblically as 12 separate books that just happen to be bunched together because they're sad. That's why they're minor prophets. They were happy they'd be major prophets. No, well, they're, they're bunched together because they're unimportant. That's why they're minor prophets. No, minor here just means small. That's what it means in music, too, by the way. Uh, without going into that, it means small. They're small books, but they are considered as one book with one narrative order. And if we understand that, we get a lot more out of Jonah and everything else that's going on. So we wanted to consider this as one book. And by the way, and. In recent years, there have been colloquia on the Twelve and symposia on the Twelve. And I could show you a little stack of books that have come out of discussions here, there, and everywhere on how these things are put together from the various uh, relatively unbelieving biblical scholars of the Society of Biblical Literature. OK, now we would say this is really one book written by God. I mean, if, if I just start Looking in here, there's not much. I mean, much written by Hosea here. It's almost all the Lord dictating stuff to Hosea and him writing it down. And then Joel is the same, and Amos is the same. When we get to Jonah, we get to a narrative. But most of this is the same as the book of Leviticus. God tells them what to write down, and they write it. Now they may have had other things to say. These guys were prophets. They lived for a while. And they live in a certain order. They live at a certain time. I'm sure they had other sermons. But this is stuff God pretty much dictates to them to write. So God planned this book out. It took him 150 years to write it. But he knew where he was going. He was going to start with Hosea and he was going to end up with Malachi. He knew what he was going to write. So what are the minor prophets? Hosea. Joel, what's the book of the twelve? What are the twelve mini-books in the big book of the twelve? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Beyond quiz. All right, what are these then? All right, this is how we can understand it. There are three parts. The first six books come at the same time as the book of Isaiah. They all happen basically in the reign of Jeroboam II of northern Israel, which we'll look at before we get done with this. Jonah specifically prophesied during his reign. And that's relevant to what happens in Jonah. But the judgments are given To the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom. And to the nations round about. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Then we move forward. Then northern Israel goes into captivity. Then we go about a hundred years later to the end of the southern kingdom. And Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah all prophesy at the same time as Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Those four guys were the pastors of the first remnant church in Jerusalem. Okay. They were Daniel and Ezekiel Sunday school teachers. That's who these people are. I mean, if you want to know how these people all live together, Daniel, and Shadrach, met Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and Ezekiel, they're all the same age. They're all born the same year. They were all royalty and nobility in the city of Jerusalem. They all went to the same synagogue in the same circle of people that Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Nahum were ministering with. Those are their teachers. That's how this works. Okay, Like Paul and Timothy, you've got those same relationships. That's when these books were written. And then we go all the way through the exile to the other side of the exile. About 20 years after the exile, we get... The books of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Again, all pretty much at the same time, all linking to Ezekiel's prophecies about the temple and the book of Chronicle Ezra and Nehemiah, which is one book, uh, and what it has to say. So, let's learn a little bit about these. Hosea. One of the things that we see that's really interesting is that. Each book ends where each book ends. The next book begins. You know, that's true. The Gospels. Matthew ends. Take the gospel. Disciple all nations. Jesus is now made king. And he says, go and disciple all nations. And the first thing we read in Mark is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Son of God means king. OK, so the kingship. We come to Jesus as king in Matthew and Mark starts there. Mark ends by saying, take the gospel to every creature. That's a word meaning the Gentile world. And we get to Luke immediately. We're in the Gentile world. And Luke ends by walking through the road to Emmaus and saying, teaching the entire Old Testament to these man, this man and his wife. So that they see all the things that are prophesied about Jesus and how they come true. And John starts in the beginning was the word Word was with God, the Word was God, so the Word going everywhere. This is not an accident. These men read each other's books, they knew what they were doing. And Hosea, chapter 14, verse 7, it's on page 1,271. It says this, this is where Hosea winds up. Winds up with promises of life on the other side of death. He says, verse 7, those who live in the shadow will again raise grain. They will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. Alright? And as soon as we open up the book of Joel, we find that this has all been judged by locusts. Okay? Verses 4 and 5. What the palmer worm has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has eaten, the canker worm has eaten. What the canker worm has eaten, the caterpillar has eaten. Awake drunkards and weep, wail all you wine drinkers on account of the sweet wine that is cut off. And then in verse 9, the grain offering and libation, that's bread and wine, are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, verse 10, the field is ruined, the land mourns, the grain is ruined, the new wine dries up. And we continue here where, where Hosea ends up promising that on the other side of judgment, bread and wine will be restored. Joel begins by saying, yeah, well, not yet. And Joel, chapter 3, verse 16, endeth this way. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. He roars. What roars? Do donkeys roar? Not that I know. Lions roar. Amos. Right down the same page here. Now I'm on page twelve seventy-seven. It says, verse 16, the Lord roars from Zion in Joel. Amos, verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion. From Jerusalem, he utters his voice. So, right again, we have all this roaring going on. Now, where does Amos end? Amos, I know you're just fascinated on this. Amos, chapter 9, verse 12. Seth, they may possess the remnant of Edom. All nations that are called by my name. I, in context, verse 11, in that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David, wall up its breaches, raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that God's people may possess the remnant of Edom. And as soon as we get to Obadiah, Obadiah is all about judgment on Edom so that God's people can possess her, maybe. When we get down to the end of Obadiah, Obadiah 15, at the center of the book of Obadiah, it says the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations, all the nations, for as you have done, it will be done to you. And then we go to Jonah and God's judgment comes to the capital city of nations of the world at that time in Jonah chapter three. Verses five to nine, the people put on sackcloth and ashes, as we saw, and they don't eat anything and they're fasting. And that's where Micah begins. Micah says in verse eight, because of the sins, I must lament and wail, must go barefoot and naked, make a lament like jackals in the morning, like ostriches. I didn't know ostriches mourn, but I guess they do because they stick their head in the ground. All right. So there are these Tags. I didn't make this up. Scholars have pointed this out numerous times. There are these tags that that show, I mean, if you ever got, if you ever lost these books, you could figure out what order they go in by these literary tags. Now, there are two major themes in the book of the twelve, both of which link with Jonah. The first is the day of the Lord. This phrase, the day of the Lord, we we Think about the phrase day of the Lord. And we think it must be all over the Old Testament. People warning about the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, the day of Jehovah. But that's not so. This talking about the coming day of judgment, the day of the Lord, only occurs twice in Isaiah. It only occurs twice in Ezekiel. But it occurs 15 times in the 12. And not only that, and it is the center of the book of 12, as we'll see. Uh, Zephaniah is the central book in this set. And it's all about the day of the Lord. Uh, the phrase, in that day, occurs 17 times in Zechariah 12 to 14, which is the climax of that book. In other words, you get to the last three chapters of Zechariah, which is the last section. And in 10 plus 7 times, we have in that day. In that day, God does this. In that day, God does that. So Days. Day. What does the word day mean? And God called the light day. Day means light time. Okay, When there's light. We call the whole period of time day. The days go from evening to morning. So the brighter part of the day is where the name day comes from. And it means the time of light. So when the day of the Lord means when God comes and shines light. If you are you know, a student in college and your folks are coming to visit and you don't want them to see just how filthy your room is. And you go through and replace all the light bulbs with 25 watt bulbs so that, you know, stuff doesn't show up. So if you get one of those 300 watt bulb, curly bulbs in there. Every speck of dust will show up. Okay, when God brings his light, it shows everything up. It shows up the stuff we want to keep secret. So this day of the Lord theme is a big one here. Now, the phrase does not occur in Jonah, but that's what's happening in Jonah. Once we get what the theme is, we can see it even when the words don't occur. And the other major theme in this book is an inspection of jealousy on a harlot people. And that is where Hosea begins and Malachi ends. In Numbers chapter 5, I'm not going to read this because it's kind of detailed and intense. But we have this odd law. I don't think anybody probably ever tried to do this law. But it says if a man suddenly is overcome with a powerful feeling that his wife has been stepping out on him, then he is to bring her to the Lord. And there's a ritual they go through. She lets her hair down. They write some curses on the scroll and wash it off into some water. She drinks the water. She's holding memorial bread in her hand. And whenever you bring bread before the presence of God, he comes. If you want God to get interested, you bring Him bread. That's what it. That's why we call the Lord's Supper a memorial. It's not done to remind us. It it calls on God. So, the minkah, or bread offering in Leviticus chapter 2, is called a memorial, just as our bread and wine are called memorials. We have the priestly memorial of bread and the kingly memorial of wine now in the new covenant, in the new creation. That is what inspects, if the woman is guilty There will be some kind of judgment in her stomach. If she's not guilty, nothing will happen along those lines and she'll have children. Okay. Now, we don't have any record in the Bible or in ancient Jewish literature of any man bringing his wife to the tabernacle and going through this ritual. But we got loads of examples of God doing it to Israel. At the Golden Calf, they ground up the Ten Commandments ground up the calf, and they made everybody drink it, and the people who were guilty were showed up. At Belshazzar's feast in Daniel 5, it's not called a feast, it's called a great bread. Literally, it says, Belshazzar the king gave a great bread for a thousand of his lords, and in front of a thousand he was drinking wine, bread and wine. And they brought out all the statues of all the gods, and they prayed to him, somebody help us. They sang that song from Smallville. Somebody save me. You know that? Okay? Because Cyrus is right out there with his army. And so surely one of these gods will hear. So they brought out bread, and they're having they're not having a wild feast here, they're having a solemn feast. And sure enough, God God shows up and he writes judgment on the wall. And it says, when he wrote the judgment on the wall, Belshazzar's, the knots of his loins were untied, which means that he wet his pants. He just, you know, he lost it in his bowels. That's a judgment on his stomach. Okay, this is the basic form of this judgment. It happened with Adam and Eve. As soon as they ate what they shouldn't, they suddenly felt guilty. And where was that guilt localized? Yeah, it says they made shoulder pads because their shoulders feel guilty, right? No, that's not it. They they covered this up. All right? Began to have panic attacks. When God shows up, people have panic attacks. All right? This happens over and over again in the Bible. This business of God coming in. And and the book of the Twelve has this double theme. Day of the Lord where God shines light. An inspection of jealousy where he calls up, treats Israel, Judah, and the nations as wayward brides who have been unfaithful and who are going to become childless as a result and find judgment upon themselves. Especially Israel and double especially Judah. Because the temple and the priests were in the midst of Judah. The prophets were out there teaching in both Israel and Judah. So we're going to look at this now briefly. If we begin in Hosea 1 through 3, this is where the book ends. You remember the story. Hosea is asked, told by God, to go ahead and marry Gomer. You know That just doesn't work for me I think we're going to say Gomer, because Hosea married to Gomer. It's kind of like David's wife, Michael. When I read about, hear about David and his marriage to Michael, something's wrong. So we say Michal, married to Michal, Saul's daughter, and he is married to a harlot. This woman has uh, been a harlot, and she's uh, Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam. And so she gives him children but the children are not the ones that God wants. He says these children uh, the ch- this is a this is a type this is a symbolic action. It really happened. But God brought this about to say this is what my marriage to Israel is like. Israel is a harlot. The children that are coming forth are not the children that I want. Lo, Ruhamah, I will not have compassion on the house of Israel. These are not the seed that God seeks. So the wife is judged and set aside in chapter 2. And then she's purchased from slavery in chapter 3, which makes this an exodus. And she's kept in isolation for a time, which is like another wilderness. Okay, Uh, And then the wife is restored to God and to David. This is all in chapter 3, so let's just hear it. Then Yahweh said to me, "Go again, love this woman, this companion, who is loved by her husband, although an adulteress. Even as Yahweh loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Now this I'll tell you something about that sun-dried raisins. It's all idolatrous food. That's what they offered to the other gods. Okay, you didn't bring raisins. You see." You can't bring raisins to God in the Old Testament. Why? What are raisins made of? Mm -hmm. Grapes, raisins, wine. That stuff, you're told to wait. It's only when the kingdom comes that you have wine with Jesus. When the wine was brought to the tabernacle, it was poured out. You're supposed to bring it, but then pour it out. Only bread is put on the altar. You have a meal with the Lord of the Tabernacle, it's only bread and meat, not wine. You bring wine but you pour it out as a sign that the kingdom hasn't really come yet. When Jesus comes, he gives wine. Alright? Now we have both. You can't you, you when you worship God worship these other gods who claim to be kings, and you eat raisins with them, that shows that you are well, it's a sin. It's not allowed in the Old Testament. You haven't come to the kingdom yet. It's just what Adam and Eve did. Seizing knowledge of good and evil. All right. Verse 3. Then I said to her, you will stay with me for many days. You will not play the harlot, nor will you have a man. So I will be toward you. So, we're gonna, you know, we'll sleep in separate bedrooms for a while. But the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince. Without sacrifice, that means communion meal. Whenever you see the word sacrifice in the Bible, it means communion meal. Or sacred pillar without effort or household idols. I'm not going to have any of these false communion meals or true ones. And afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king. They will come trembling the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Now, that's where it begins in the book. Of the twelve ends in Malachi, which is a whole series of inspections. Uh, And in chapter 2, verse 15, God is still seeking a true seed. It says he is looking for a godly seed, which hasn't come yet. Still waiting for Jesus. Judgment is predicted and then restoration. So these are the bookends on the book of the twelve. Inspections of jealousy, wayward bride. Malachi is all over this, as we'll see probably next time. We'll do a little survey, run through them all. And you'll see the melody that is going on here. We have, we have judgments on Israel, judgments on Judah, judgments on the nation. And this, these things are woven together through this. And Jonah plays a, a major role in this. Once we see the larger context, we see a lot more about Jonah. So, in the few minutes that remain here... Finishing up the first page here. What is the plot? The plot is from judgment to death and then to resurrection. Before I say anything about this, I need to remind you. The prophets never, ever say to Israel. You sin. If you repent. There won't be any judgment. That's not the message of the prophets. It's never the message. The message is, you sinned. And I'm going to bring you through death. But if you remain faithful to me, you'll come to resurrection. Because if God wants to make a new day, what does he do first? He has an evening. When he wants to make a beautiful babe for Adam, he doesn't say, Adam, stand still, pop out a rib and make her. No, he puts Adam down into death sleep. Makes a woman and brings him back. That's how God does stuff. So if there's going to be a new world, there needs to be some kind of death. It doesn't have to be traumatic. The book of Jeremiah makes this very plain. Jeremiah says God has put Nebuchadnezzar in charge of everybody. So submit to Nebuchadnezzar. You don't get to have your own kingdom anymore, but this is going to be an easy death. Nebuchadnezzar's already taken over Daniel and some of the royal house. They're being educated. They're already at Nebuchadnezzar's right hand. They're his chief advisors. In fact, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego have been placed in charge of Babylon project, province, the central province of the empire. They're in charge of it. They're ruling things over this. So this is going to be good, this' is going to be cool. You know, if you rebel, it won't be. OK? This is going to be a nice, easy death. You'll go to sleep for a while, kind of like Jonah in that fish, and you'll come out again. But if you rebel, then I'm going to be dragging you off, and you'll be eating your own little babies and everything else, like it says in the book of Lamentations. Well, it's kind of up to you, you know. What's it going to be? And, uh, but the message is always the same. The just man will live by faith. What that means is... When the judgment comes, the man who is faithful to God will come to life on the other side. That's always a promise, and it's a promise repeatedly in these books. Okay, Submit to judgment, go through death, and you'll be resurrected. So that's the plot of the book as a whole. There is a gradual spiral down to the destruction of Jerusalem in Zephaniah. And the climax of this death section is the book of Zephaniah, which is all about the day of Yahweh. And just very briefly, let me just read that central section to you here. We'll come back to it. But this is where we get this is as we get more and more judgment. We get all the way down here to Zephaniah and then we get the 30 of the the, uh, captivity in Babylon. But this is what we have in Zephaniah near is the great day of Yahweh. Near and coming very quickly. I mean, This is only, you know, a matter of a year or two away now. The voice of the day of, Yahweh, day of Yahweh is overpowering. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. Instead of bright light is darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men; they will walk like the blind, because they have sinned against Yahweh. Their blood will be poured out in the dust, and their flesh like manure. They are worthless; they're garbage. All
0: right.
1: Neither the silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of Yahweh's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his. Jealousy. This is your inspection of jealousy. Okay, this is the wayward bride, Jerusalem, and this jealousy language is going to run through this entire cycle of books. But then, okay, Zephaniah ends. Woe to the rebellious city, the tyrannical city. But then he ends after the destruction. He says, "Shout for joy, daughter Zion." Shout, O Israel, rejoice, daughter Jerusalem. Yahweh has taken away his judgments, he has cleared away your enemies, the Lord is king in your midst, and I will restore the fortune before your eyes, your fortune before your eyes. And then we get to Haggai and Zechariah, which is after the exile, and everything's being restored. And it just ends real great. We come to the end of the book of Zechariah, and it is absolutely fantastic what's going on here. Listen to this. Okay? In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to Yahweh. That's what's on the high priest's forehead. But now, man, cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. All whose sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. Now, all the food you eat will be holy. You'll be such holy people that everything you touch will be holy. All the food you eat will be holy. There will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Boy, that's great. Then we come to the book of Malachi. (laughs) See, every time God makes a covenant, first thing we do is rebel. God puts Adam and Eve in the garden. What's the first thing they did? Rebel. God got us out of Egypt. What did we do? As soon as Moses was out of sight, built a golden calf. God gives David the kingdom. As soon as his enemies are all at peace, what's he do? Murders one of his three mighty men and takes his young wife, a girl who'd grown up in David's court. He'd known her since she was a child. And the first thing, and the first thing that happens after the glories of this new covenant, after the exile, Malachi. And what Malachi says over and over again. See me fold this paper. He may be encouraged. What Malachi does, and this is, uh, we want to spend a little bit of time on this because I, your translation is not going to help. He says, what I expect, you sin and then you bring an offering to me. Do you think I want an offering from you? But it's not just the word offering. It's that word bread offering. It's a memorial. And the sin in Malachi is, and it's particularly the priests who are dressed. He says, you you put aside the wife of your youth. bought yourself a red sports car, red Austin Healy. And now you're, you're out with some young chick that you've married. And uh, and she's your wife is crying tears on the altar. And then after doing that, you bring memorial bread to me and ask me to come. I'm coming. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. I'm going to burn you all up. That's what he says. So that's the message of that book. The sin is not just this various sins, not tithing, bringing lame animals to sacrifice, being sloppy about everything, oppressing the poor. But then on top of that, repeatedly, he says, on top of that, you bring memorial bread into my presence and ask me to come. Oh, Yahweh, come save us. Yeah, I'm coming. all right. Okay, Purify the tribes of Levi. I'm going to bring you up. OK, so that's where this ends. It ends with this inspection, this threat. That God is going to come, which, of course, we know from John the Baptist and Jesus. That is what happened. He came and burned the city up. All right. Any questions about this little survey introduction? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, they always have to repent, but repentance doesn't mean you don't go through death and resurrection. And what the Ninevites do is, you know, they bury themselves alive. They put on sackcloth, which is burial clothing. They don't eat anything, which is death, as we all know. <laughs> You know, they uh, sit in the dust, which is a dust thou art, that thou, shalt, that thou shalt return. So they voluntarily say, okay, we deserve to die. And they put themselves through death. And so God says, okay, now I'll give you resurrection. Um, he says within 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. And Nineveh was destroyed. They voluntarily took the destruction upon themselves. So that that is an option. But it's not really the option put before Israel. I mean, this is a Gentile... City, they're not assumed to know as much. To whom much is given, much more is required. And what Israel has to go through ultimately has to, it has to lead down to what Jesus goes through on the cross because he is the ultimate Israel. So um, it's a matter of how central you are. That answering. Yeah, so, yeah, they've got to repent. I mean, Habakkuk is saying, look, you don't want to be like the proud man, like King Jehoiakim, and be destroyed. You want to be a faithful man, and you will have life if you are faithful and be just. Uh, So, yeah, it's always a call to repent, but repentance doesn't mean you don't have to experience some form of death. Because the fact is, everybody in this room is going to die. So, we, we are all going to die. The question is... What's going to happen on the other side of that. You know, if you're faithful, come to life. Very well. Did you start to say something? The, 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 okay. Okay. The question was, you know, Adam being told, in the day you eat of it, you will die. How does uncleanness, being a form of death, relate to that? This is how. You can either die the nice way or the hard way. You know, you can fall asleep and wake up glorified. That's what happened to Adam the first time. You know, a woman is the glory of the man. so, face it, guys, you know, they're made to sugar, spice, and everything nice. We aren't. All right. Uh, so the word Adam means dirt bag and the word Isha means flamet. You know, that's girls are flames. Men are dirt bags. That's the way it's written there in Genesis. That's the easy way. That's what might have happened if he'd been faithful and come to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when he ate it in sin, then death becomes unpleasant. OK, so there are three judgments given in uh Obvious, simply given in Genesis three. The first of them is to the serpent, you will crawl in the dust, eat dust. The second judgment is on the woman, you will be difficulty in childbirth will be multiplied, and there's lots of different forms of that. And then, by the sweat of your brow, the man will work. Now I'll go to Leviticus. Leviticus eleven, unclean animals. Unclean animals are the ones that travel in the dirt and eat carrion. The next chapter, chapter 12, complications in childbirth, uncleanness from childbirth. Chapter 13 and 14, leprosy, dry skin, marks on the flesh, and forms of sweat. They're linked with sweat. So, the symbolic judgments that come in the law are expansions and revelations of the meaning of the initial judgments that are given in Genesis 3. So that's how those things relate.